Welcome to Strat Extra, where we talk to industry experts about how businesses can reach new heights. With our team of trusted advisors, we'll explore how to improve customer experience, leverage business process outsourcing to enhance your bottom line, utilize best-in-class cloud and connectivity solutions, as well as stay current with next-gen IT infrastructure. Welcome to Stratastra. I'm your trusted advisor, Zach Hesterter. Today we're talking about Avance 612 report on security NIST with Stefan Semmelroth from Avant. Stefan Semmelroth is the senior director of security with Avant Communications. We're super excited to have you on today with us, Stefan, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Very excited. Uh, you know, this, this report is a work of love. And we like to consider them, you know, a living document because in the, in the space that we live in, the fundamentals of security don't really shift. They don't really change, but the landscape absolutely does. So it's, it's fun to capture this and I'm, I'm excited to dig into it a little bit deeper and talk about it and in a way that hopefully resonates with your audience. And if you're listening to this, I hope you more than just a little bit out of it. I hope it, it's something that you can use and will help you. Uh, change the way that you do business with security. Great. And and just curious, why did Avant decide to recommend the National Institute of Standards and Technology cybersecurity framework out of all the frameworks that are available today? And what makes it stand out to you guys? So there's a number of reasons behind that. And, it, and it's a great question. There are so many different standards and tying in one that makes sense and one that's easy to consume is probably the first part. I'll say the cheeky answer is because it's a you know US government report, it's free. So you don't have to buy anything, which is really convenient. And it's really along with a couple of the other structural frameworks out there that go far deeper. It's a very good actionable mental model. And because it's so actionable, it really allows companies to embrace the the mindset, embrace the foundations and apply them locally. So it's it's really good. It's also, it, it ties in and maps very nicely to other control frameworks and operational frameworks that exist without going too deep. So you can use this framework, everything from internal operations all the way to, and we, we'll maybe even talk about this a little bit, using this as a way to queue up conversations with executive stakeholders and the board. Makes sense. And can you explain what the six to twelve portion of the report, uh, what that what that means to you guys? Oh, absolutely. So when we look at a lot of reports in the industry, many of them look at what's happened retroactively, what's happened in the past, and then you've got other reports in the industry that say this is the you know broadly the future of cybersecurity, and we specifically chose six twelve. And it stands for what we think is going to happen in the market six months to 12 months from right now. So what are those things that you as a CIO, a CISO, a CTO, what are the things that you need to know about the market transitions right now so you can build them into your operational timeline, your financial timeline, your digital monetization timeline? Build all of those in such a way that you can see the future with just enough that you can do something about it 
without being so far down in the future that it's a nice to have, but not a need to have. So we're really trying to answer that, that market niche that really not many other people are addressing right now. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me because obviously if we're looking too far in the future, things can change so quickly. And in six to 12 months with technology, they change so quickly. Um, so that makes total sense on why you guys do that. Now, the Avant NIST report, it also explains that there's three levels of security maturity that are reactive, proactive, and adaptive. How can trusted advisors help companies mature from reactive to adaptive? Uh, you know, another, another great question. So as, as we look at it, um, going from reactive to proactive to adaptive is a big, big, big shift. And as we, as we really drill down into it, the models that we use already exist. So if we look at, say, a good sales process or a good program management process, they often start into that reactive stage. And you, you can feel it when you, like as a consultant, when you go into a company or you talk to a client that's new, you can kind of feel where they are in that stage. You know, those pre-seed clients are usually very reactive and they need to be in, in order to stay competitive. And then proactive is where a lot of companies kind of sit. They, they get out of the reactive phase, they build some process, they start, you know, doing really strong onboarding with their employees. And organizationally, it's a nice place to be. But it's not really adaptive to the market, which gets back to the 612 concept, right? What's going to happen in the market? So when we take that mentality and we shift it down to the security landscape, most companies really struggle to invest in the people, process, and technology for security. And that leaves a couple, one, two, maybe three people that are security is a second hat. It's not their primary opportunity, their primary business. And this is different, all different levels. We can, we can talk about whichever one you'd like. But usually what we see is without the people investment, we never really get to process. And without process, we never really drive technology or business outcomes. And that's where shifting that organizational maturity is so important. And the route to get there really needs to be a dedicated plan. It absolutely needs to be a dedicated plan, just like every other uh, silo in a company. So the, that route takes substantial vision. It takes substantial communication with other stakeholders across the organization. It can't just be one guy or gal that says, this is the vision of security in their own silo. On a note, I was, I was at a company pre-COVID. I walked in and, and went to the, uh, the security section and on their marker board, it literally said silo of excellence, which, <laughs> which, which is a tough place to be in. And, uh, <laughs> and they were working to expand out of that and get to you know, you know, break down those silos. But when we, when we look at some of the higher level certifications in the industry, they were literally designed to take technically astute engineering wizards and give them the skill set that they need to speak to the business level. So if we go back even just 10 years, there were very, very few CISOs, chief information security officers that had an MBA. And that was really tough 
as an industry. That was very reactive because it meant that as security practitioners, we weren't speaking the language of the business, which meant we were very much self-limiting ourselves to be reactive. And that good cross-organizational communication and then building out a roadmap and that integration strategy, that liaising, what you'd expect out of, say, really a mid-grade program manager, not, not just project, but program manager, and looking cross-functional, building that capacity in the industry is super incredibly important. And it really is key to driving to that adaptive phase where now we're planning out and we're enabling other people at our organization to succeed, not in spite of security, but because security gave them the tools that they needed. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page with you guys. Um, so with just the background, Stratosphere being an MSSP for years, you know, we always recommend where customers, like they don't know where to start the journey to at least do something like a security assessment. And then, you know, kind of like you were saying, help them to roadmap and help them put a project and help them put a plan in place that they can, you know, invest in in the future. So I'm, I'm on board with you there. So Avant has kind of observed that the bad guys are now more organized, utilizing the same strategies and technologies as businesses. Can you talk about what that means for organizations looking to safeguard their data and IT environments? And how do yeah. they combat that highly unorganized cybercrime that's out there today? Yeah, so this is multi-tiered, right? So when, when we look at the some of the biggest threat actors in the market, and I'll use the Conti Ransomware Group. I'll call them out by name, Conti Ransomware Group. They own about 20% of the ransomware market, and it is a market, and we know the, those numbers. They operate like a Disney, like a technology distributor. They have a two-tier market model, and the way that they the way that they go out and they find, in their terms, clients, right? People that are getting hacked, people getting <laughs> ransomware. Clients, I like that. Yep. <laughs> their their model and and let me tell you how we know this so their model we have their playbook we know what their playbook looks like and it happens to be like we got their playbook for the same same way that one of a uh, uh, every ceo's biggest fears is they had a disgruntled employee who took the playbook and released it on the internet <laughs> we know their wow. playbook <laughs> step 1.1 of their playbook is use sales tools to look up potential clients. Literally the same sales tools. If you're listening to this and you have a sales department, go ask them what tools they use and cross-reference it against Conti's map. I can almost <laughs> guarantee that they use the exact same sales tools that your organizations use. I'm not going to name the names because they're not sponsoring this, this podcast, but it's right there in, in step 1.1, line 5. And so the part of the question is that, that I, I, I talk when I'm talking with clients all over the world is Conti's partner ecosystem that are using your sales tools, are they better at using your sales tools than you are? And that's a really tough question to answer. The way that they go to market, they'll steal your stuff and lock your stuff up. So like they've got more leverage than your sales team potentially. So as we, as we dive deeper into it, their referral agreements. So remember, two-tier model. 
the way that they work, and this is the same with Lockbit and a couple of the other um, Hive and, and, and Ragnar set uh, for, for the tool set, the actual ransomware family usually develops the software. Developers, they've got QA teams that are better at quality assurance than our partners, guaranteed. Because if they deploy ransomware and the key doesn't work, ain't nobody going to pay them in the world. So their QA teams are very good. So they build it. And then they say, hey, partner, you're basically going to be a consultant for us. We, what, what we want you to do is you, we want you to bring us qualified leads where you've got to hook into an environment. And those teams go out and they basically train junior people at a third company that are basically you know, setting the meetings if we're looking at this in the sales process. It's this third company that's scanning the internet for open uh, remote desktop, for file shares that aren't locked down or not patched, at websites for vulnerabilities that are known. So they'll find those hooks. So they'll just go buy credentials. See it all the time. They'll just go buy a credential. Then they hand it off to the, the mid company. They're the ones that do the hunt around the network. They're trying to go find a legal SharePoint holder that says how much insurance you've got. And once they've got a good package, then they hand it off to Lockbit or Rance or, or Conti. It's this very professional model that is really driving this industry right now to the point that, and we know their names, Twin. Twin is in charge of trading, training and onboarding at Conti. And what he does is he takes people that their HR team, when they post <laughs> literal job wrecks out to the internet, Twin trains them and then hands them off to the other people in the organization. It's literally their onboarding. They get to know the data set. They get to know their lockout tools. These aren't kids in hoodies. These are professionals that have pressed shirts, button up, and polished shoes. And they perceive themselves to be professionals. And in fact, locally where they operate out of, they're often seen as almost heroes. So they're lauded for the work that they do. And it's very different than what we see in the movies here in the US. What tool sets can a business have to protect themselves from like groups like this? As, as we really look at it, the tool sets themselves often don't meet the need. Verizon's 2022 data breach investigation report. It was, if I remember the number correctly, it was north of 80 percent of major breaches had multiple alarms go off and no one knew what to do with them or didn't recognize them as real. So the tools in place is a great place to start, but that's where we're still from a reactive to a proactive to an adaptive environment. And usually what we see is not just having the organizational maturity to look at an alert but having the organizational maturity that says, if this check engine, okay, that doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't allow me to take action because I don't know the full story behind it. So when we look at the categories of NIST, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, we can start overlaying those. And this will be in the next 612 report because it's coming out really after that 12 month tier. This is really pushing the industry. Sunil Yu, the gentleman that really developed this, is, uh, I think, super forward-leaning. And there's a 
really a brain trust of people that are working together uh, on, to, to solve this and how we communicate it. But when you start overlaying devices, applications, network, data, and users with the NIST fundamentals and functions, now we can visibly see where a solution fits, not just a tool, but where a solution fits. And that allows us to then build our roadmap and get actionable stories to help our companies stay afloat and even better, help our clients have increased confidence in us as a business partner. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it just goes into a point you made earlier, having the correct, it's not about having one tool set, which I, I completely agree with you there. You can have all the great security tools in the world, but it's having a combination of people, process or people, technology and processes in place to be able to help to protect businesses. Like for example, we're working with a gaming firm that's based in Malta. They have like a thousand employees. They were running a SIM tool set, which I won't uh, mention what it was. It was a major enterprise SIM tool set out there. Well played, but... keep your cards close to the chest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This specific client, they're based in a very small country in Europe and they just did not have the engineering resources in-house to be able to to hire the correct people to manage that sim tool for them so you know working with avant and working with you guys we were able to find a partner and a provider you know looking to invest in it so oh, absolutely and along that data set almost every analyst you know whether it's the the large companies that you know that put out the industry reports or the smaller companies that are focusing on these really industry leading platforms and technologies, they almost all say the exact same thing. And I'll, I'll share it here because I think it's very important in the space. When you're looking at these advanced technologies, whether it's IAM or PAM or a cutting edge SIM tool, if it's so cutting edge, you can't find the people to, to train on them. And if it's so cutting edge, is the partner doing really amazing up-to-date documentation? Because if they're not, and the next agile sprint concludes and the, the data sources shift and that information you're looking for is in a different dashboard, it doesn't exist anymore, you can't maneuver to it. And that's why part of this go-to-market channel is so important because we see so much across the board and we know which partners are good. So shifting to the good partners and using the technologies that they use that's usually one of the last conclusions of almost any data report that you read, whether it happens to be in the 612 report for us or our industry peers or competitors. So the, the takeaway is really, who are the people and how do you expand your team? And if you're listening to this on audio, I literally have a neon sign behind me that says people. People is how we really solve the security problem. It's, it's not necessarily the tool. It's when an alarm fires, who in your company puts on the hat and the little pipe and pretends they're Sherlock Holmes and wants <laughs> to solve the mystery. I love that. Um, so just going through the report a little bit more um, and a press release actually from you guys at Avant, it stated that 60% of end user companies surveyed have not done a security assessment, a pen test in the past year, although data breaches and cybercrime are an all time high and have been a huge problem worldwide for now. Why do you think that companies aren't performing these preventative me measures and stuff like this? Well, there's a, there's a few reasons for this. 
One of them is alert fatigue, right? We see it in the news all day long. Solar winds, Kaseya, Uber, Colonial Pipeline. We see these massive things in the headlines all day long. But what we don't see is when our, our industry peers or our competitors get hit. That almost doesn't make it on the news, maybe the local news, but it's, it turns into a, it's probably not me mentality. And what we're starting to see now is that board level visibility is really beginning to shift. And we've had a, a number of partners come to us saying, we got a new board member. They were breached at their previous company. They don't want it to happen again. And they told us that the amount of spend, the ratio of spend on IT versus security is too small. What do we do? So that, that's one way that the world's changing right now. That's a very positive way. And it's not necessarily about spend. That's one metric, right? And we can work to educate our boards on that of, of how we can structure it. Sometimes it does come down to spend. But part of the reason is that additionally, at a lot of companies, once you find a problem, you got to fix it. And so it's just easier to put your head in the sand. And that's why you, we see, that's, that's honestly a big reason we see security practitioners move around so much, right? The average length of a CISO is 18 months. <laughs> well, why? It's not because of breaches. It's because they're usually brought in and told, we want you to build this program. And they come in and they assume responsibility to do a program, but they're not allowed to provide accountability to the people that actually own the systems. And when you bring in someone as a change agent, but you don't authorize them to make changes, it's incredibly frustrating. And so that's often why security practitioners, who most of them, when you look at the market, and and I've, I've got the data to do this, I, not this year, but in years previous, I've, there, I've got a lot of years where I've mentored between two and 300 people a year, and most of them I have do a personality test. And I can tell you that there are literally more people in this space that are by definition advocates that want to make positive change for the importance of people. And when we don't give them the tools that they need to succeed, they're going to go find a place where they can make change. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I love that response. Thank you. So, so, so zero trust has emerged as a go-to approach for businesses that want to combat internal and external threats. Why is zero trust the best approach at this point, in your opinion? Or if not? <laughs> I could give you a few different answers on this. I could give you, you know, the academic answer. I could give you the sales answer. I could give you the consultant answer. I could just say it depends. But let me give you my answer. <laughs> so um, as when you start really teaching somebody network engineering, going back, you know, 20 years, when you start teaching them the fundamentals of operating systems and you start to see them, there's this point, this pivot point, the shift, an inflection point. You can literally see their eyes get bigger. And they start thinking like, 
okay, this thing goes on that port. And this service, we tie through that service. And if I really just wanted to exploit that and I wanted to try to get information from here over there, well, then I could, I could do it this way. And they, they start thinking of it from an attacker's perspective. And then they start thinking about it from a defender's perspective. And they say, okay, if I run my DNS and instead of being on port 53, if I do it on port 55, it'll be harder for an attacker to find. But then if they just look at the traffic, they'll be able to figure out where it, the server actually is. And so what if I, instead of going from 55, what if every couple minutes I change it to a different port? What if I change it and change? And then, and you go, what if I just change everything all the time? Well, no, that's chaos. So that's not going to work. So then what <laughs> do I do next? And it starts, they start getting into segmentation. And so you can literally, you can watch kids in high school, kids in middle school, kids in grade school. You can watch them, lead them down this road. And the answer they will get to is zero trust every time. You can, and it's fun to watch them. You can, like, you can see them get excited. So zero trust is the idea that entities, so people, boxes, software systems, should only be able to see what they're allowed to access. And we should do a lot of checks before we actually give that access. So I'll give a great example here of a failed implementation of zero trust. In uh, 2004, I was doing a network assessment. And I was looking at it from a perspective of availability. We were seeing a lot of unnecessary slowdowns on this network. So I started to dig into it a little bit deeper. And that I realized that this massive network had no segmentation whatsoever. There was nothing segmenting it. You could see 50,000 endpoints, all of the infrastructure from any single thing that was on the network. And so for what I actually recommended was, if we break this up a little bit, your user experience is gonna go through the roof. We're talking like a hundred X user experience, literally something that would take a minute and a half to load will now load in one second. Years later, decades later, I happened to be in that town when they had a public announcement that there was a breach. And I showed up and I walked in and I said, hey, listen, I, I know your network from a while ago. Um, you have a great mission. I'd love to do this pro bono for you. Give me an NDA. Let's, let's take a look and see if I can help you get out of this breach. I'd been a little delinquent on giving back to the community that month. <laughs> um, I walk in and I said, hey, does your network still look like this? And I laid it out. And this is literally like 15 years later. And they said, yeah. How do you know that? I said, oh, God, they didn't do the recommendations that I made 15 years ago. <laughs> and that's why ransomware spread so quickly across that network. So when we start driving to it deeper, it really, really, really moves the needle. And... It just says who and what can access something, what can they access, when can they do it, and what are the things that we need to check before they can do it. And when you start thinking of it from that perspective, man, you're really going to move the needle because zero trust assumes that you already have bad people on your network. They're already here. So going, going off of that example that you were kind of telling about with with the business um, that hadn't implemented the, those changes, and maybe for like a firm that is listening, that wants to implement a zero trust strategy. 
what is the biggest like obstacle that they or obstacles that they can avoid when implementing a strategy like this? Great question. So, <laughs> the, I mean, this like that. This is this is literally a two million dollar question. So traditionally, the answer used to be very detailed network segmentation, very very detailed segmentation, and that came out of a lot of the like like me my background military type of cyber units that have a, enough people in order to really maintain that level of segmentation across the network. Now, the, the meme amongst, among CISOs is that network segmentation projects are where CISOs go to die. They still absolutely work. So subnets and VLANs, yes, do them. 802.1x, yes, do it. But really, we're seeing the shift from MPLS to SD-WAN to SASE and implementing zero trust fundamentals from the network access perspective, we're really seeing that move the needle in a lot of ways. And that goes back to uh, Google's Beyond Trust, Beyond Corp papers and John Kinderbag previous to that, and even other intellectuals you know, back into the 70s. And the, the other route is deploying zero trust at, at, at the endpoint. Because if we can capture and block the network access from the endpoint before anything even goes out, then we're really going to, to move the needle. And then if you combine that with a really, really good identity practice, because we remember we are assuming that the bad guys are already here. They're already in the network. Once we do that, we start to think differently. And as we implement who and what can access what, where, when, and how, we can, we can move the needle. So I really like endpoint zero trust. I really like network uh, access zero trust. And then if those aren't in the budget, really building the maturity of the identity team. And usually that comes down to help desk, which is fine. But it's, again, back to the Conti concept. Are they using our tools better than we are? Yep. Yeah, and obviously, if you have a trusted advisor that you're talking to, lean on them to bring these resources, bring the correct engineers to have these sorts of conversations with you, and you know, bring the correct people, process, and technology into place again. Yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to that. So the, the lessons learned from the military of how do you liaison between two different military units to achieve a common objective? Those lessons, when you apply those at the organizational layer to align the, you remember, the silo of excellence and turn it from a silo into a, a combined team to get everybody going in one direction, phenomenal. Phenomenal. And you can actually save a lot of money while you're doing it. Carlotta Sage, brilliant CISO. One of the things that she does, she's got, a, she's got presentations um, all over. And actually, uh, Cayman Islands this year were we're presenting, uh, hopefully not at the same time, together at, at a, a conference. She's giving a talk called, it's one of my favorite talks that she gives, it's called Show Me the Money. And the concept is, how can we use security to save money and in order to align investments at an organization? And it usually comes back down to people and how people spend their time interfacing with security in order to do their job. Because if we can save everybody two minutes a day, that has a very material cost. Great. And could you talk about like the role that virtual CISOs can help in in helping or can play in helping businesses achieve zero trust and adhere to the NIST framework? Absolutely. So 
let's talk about what a virtual CISO is first, or a fractional CISO, or a VCSO. Effectively, they're security consultants. And most of them, I use that term very loosely across the industry, most of them have the ability to speak to the board. Not every client needs someone that can speak to the board. So I, I ran a fractional CISO practice myself. How often did I really speak to the board? One out of 10 meetings for a client. Usually what we were doing was looking at the deliverables. What are the deliverables to really help move the needle? Roadmap is key. Incident response exercises, key. Let me talk about why those are important. And my experience in the military, I usually go back to that. When we did large, and I'm talking tens of thousands of people exercises in the desert out in California or Louisiana, swamp and desert, there were only three things you needed to do to succeed. Number one, have a plan. Number two, make sure everyone knows the plan. And number three, rehearse. Because once you rehearse and everybody knows the plan, that's like learning guitar and learning rock and roll before you learn jazz guitar. It allows you to go freeform. It allows you to play upon a theme. And so that incident response tabletop exercise is one of the most important things that a fractional CISO or a virtual CISO can help a client do. Build a roadmap and help them do, uh, uh, help them practice for a period of adversity. And I got to tell you, you will literally, literally, clients out there, partners out there, if you're not doing these, talk to the, talk to the team, talk to the team. Have them bring in somebody that can do this that's really, really good because you will watch your organization change in a very meaningful way in just a couple hours. It's, it's really fun to watch. So ransomware is obviously still a really big issue in the world of cybersecurity right now. Obviously, anyone can Google ransomware and see every single day headlines about companies being hit. What developments do you expect to see in terms of ransomware in 2023? And in your opinion, what is the best thing that businesses can do to protect themselves from it? Oh, that's a loaded question, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so in a previous life, I owned a security recruiting company. And let me talk to you about the most important question that you can ask a penetration tester from a hiring perspective. And then I'll circle back and tell you why it's important for you. Say, hey, penetration tester, what's the thing that frustrates you the most? What tool set frustrates you the most? And they usually say application control because that means they can't run their tools. So if we have this really good system uh, that you can only run PowerShell and you can only run, you, know, you, you pick the tool, Outlook. Those are the only things you can run. Man, that's really frustrating. Because as a penetration tester, that means they got to learn PowerShell instead of their, their tools. So that means we've already weeded out the equivalent of those SDRs in the market, right? Going back to their model. We've weeded out those junior people. Now we're looking at the mid-level people that are really good technically. So as we work up that stack on technical proficiency for the bad guys, 
That's the most important thing you can do. Here's the problem. And I'll go back to, um, I like to I like to stand on the shoulders of giants. You don't have to listen to me. The Australian Signals Directorate, the ASD. The ASD has a publication called the Essential 8 Maturity Model. And they say that the most important thing you can do is application control. So remember, it was the penetration testers most frustrating thing. And government organizations are saying, this is the most important thing you can do. Here's the problem, though. It takes a lot of work to maintain that system because every time there's a new Outlook update and the signature changes, you have to go through and keep that maintained. It's costly to do that. So uh, often, often the answer is, you know, if, if we come in and we, we talk from a consulting practice and we talk to a client and they maybe have antivirus or some, some form of endpoint detection and response, that's a mm -hmm. great place to start. But if they don't have an incident response retainer, that's often what I recommend. Start here. Because in the time it takes for you to go from reactive to proactive to adaptive, your risk exposure window is still wide open. And who are you going to call when something bad does happen? Give yourself a little bit of a cushion. And they're very cheap to get a retainer built in. They're very cheap. Uh, and usually most companies allow you to shift those uh, funds at the end of the year if you haven't done them to like an incident response exercise. So then we usually start talking about people gaps and tying in for that roadmap. Where do you go next? Is application control something you can do in the next three years, or 10 years or five years? And then going back to your question on security pro services in a virtual CISO, getting that roadmap. Because if you are say, Say you're all in, you're a developer shop and you're all in on Linux. The answer is very different than being all in on say Microsoft 365. And the things that you can do in each of those ecosystems, a good fractional CISO can help you use your tools to frustrate the bad guys more. And that's sometimes what it's about is making the bad guys get frustrated. I mean, it's about protecting our own services and allowing us to go to market, <laughs> but Sometimes it's just about frustrating the bad guys because we're competitive in this space. <laughs> Love it. When a company gets hit by ransomware, the, the ransom actually, it only accounts for 15% of the total financial burden of getting breached. Can you talk about what accounts for like the remaining 85% of that? Absolutely. Often much of that, a substantial portion of, of that other 85% is lost revenue. So if we look at, I like to use public use cases, the Colonial Pipeline breach. It was all over the news. It's one of our biggest case studies in the industry. When Colonial Pipeline was shut down, it wasn't their pipeline that got shut down. It was their order system. And they couldn't take orders. If an e-commerce company will switch it up, say you sell shoes on the internet, if your site is not available, you can't take new orders, which means you can't get shoes out of your warehouse and into clients' feet. And that's a large portion of it. Because if you're down, if you're down, like if you're an e-commerce company and you're down from Thanksgiving to Black Friday and through the weekend, you might miss 20% of your revenue for the year. That's tough. A lot of the other costs go into incident response and forensics, 
and disaster recovery. And depending on how egregious the attack actually is, sometimes it's literally replacing racks, hardware, sending people in trucks to go to a data center. We had an unfortunate incident where, um, and they had 1,000 sites all across the West Coast. They actually had a legitimate need to send people in trucks to 1,000 sites. That's tough. Yeah, we've had some similar scenarios being an MSSP ourselves, you know, where we've had to completely rebuild things for for prospective clients that came in. They were breached and we've had to do it from the ground up and something that's extremely work intensive. So don't get in that place. (laughs) (laughs) An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of remediation. Yes, exactly. So you guys have said that companies need to put in the work ahead of the regulatory push just as much as they need to be ahead of our adversaries. How can business leaders accomplish that? And what regulatory developments do you expect to see in 2023? Here locally in the U.S., and I'll start talking about the U.S. markets. I believe that this year we'll see a lot of privacy change, additional privacy laws, Most of them are driven and modeled after California's mandatory reporting for distant classifications. Those policies were gained more teeth. I think that New York Bess will continue to really drive some of this on the East Coast as well in the financial services space. Those definitions are going to be strongly worked around by legal teams. I think the legal, strong, legal-focused lawyers are going to be a a hot commodity here soon. They already are, and they're going to be even more. And I think, you know, to organizations like the Department of Homeland Defense are going to continue to really, again, gain more teeth and uh, like the elevation of the cyber force to a combatant command is going to be massively huge. And I, I think what we're going to see through like Interpol, if we look outside of the U.S., is much more strong push for extradition for those safe harbors for the ransomware partners. And as we really start to see that cross-collaboration, the intergovernmental communication, targeting ransomware partners and different cryptocurrency exchanges that are really only designed to enable criminals, I think we're going to see a a bigger push uh, for extradition and starting to take some of these bad guys off the market. That'll be a, a big push. Coming back internally, I think privacy and breach notifications will be really big, probably pushed again by the insurance market and providers, which is a very interesting market. We could we could do two podcasts on that easy. Well, I think that kind of uh, that ends things with our podcast today, um, just on that conversation. So I really wanted... <laughs> We're you... leaving on a high note, aren't we? We're leaving on a high <laughs> note. <laughs> so I wanted to really thank you for your time. Thanks, Stefan, for joining us. And uh, thanks to all the listeners for listening to Strat Extra and stay tuned for our next episode. Absolutely. As, and as we, you know, there, there's a lot that you, the listener, can do. There's a lot that you can do. As, and as you dig into it deep, the more you can do with your own systems, the better. And finding a partner that can help you do that. I mean, you're talking to one of them right now. And, and this whole thing is a teamwork. The, the industry has modernized so much. And there's so much great teaming out here. The access to information is only getting better. So continue to go out, find great partners, and, uh, and stay tuned. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to Strat Extra. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. To learn more about Stratosphere and give us feedback, please visit www.stratospherenetworks.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode of Strat Extra.